Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, it's necessary for us to Make sure that we are in fellowship. The Bible teaches that when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that all of your sins are forgiven. The pre-salvation sins are completely forgiven. Your post-salvation sins are positionally forgiven because they have been paid for completely by Christ's work on the cross. However, when we sin in time, that has an effect on that rapport with God, that fellowship, that relationship, so that we're told that the ongoing sanctifying ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, is shut down. It is temporarily uh, squelched or quenched, and it is only when we are forgiven of our sins that that ministry resumes. We receive forgiveness for our sins when we confess our sins to God, which simply means to acknowledge or to admit our sins to Him. It doesn't mean uh, have the idea of repentance or remorse or feeling sorry for our sins. For God in His omniscience knows that many times we'll commit those same sins we're so embarrassed about another 5,672 times this year. And so when you try to barter with God and say, Lord, just forgive me this one time. Don't, don't, don't lower the boom on me. I'll never do this again. God in His grace just sort of chuckles, knowing full well that we'll do it many more times. The issue isn't our sincerity or how we feel about the sin. The issue is that we recognize it as such, admit it to God, and God in His grace, because of Christ's sufficient payment for that sin, forgives us of the sins we remember, and then He cleanses us from all other sins. At that instant, that ongoing sanctifying ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, resumes and our forward advance in the spiritual life can take place. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who is the unique power base for the believer in the church age. No other age has the indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit as we do. So that sets us as believers in the church age apart from other times. So we have tremendous, unbelievable assets that God has given us for our spiritual life. Part of that ministry of the Holy Spirit is to help us to learn, understand, store, and recall 
what we learn in God's Word. That doesn't negate the normal processes of study, concentration, uh, repetition, and memory, but God, the Holy Spirit, enhances all of those normal functions. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, in your grace, you have revealed yourself to us. The Old Testament, that revelation, often included a personal appearance. There were personal appearances in the Garden of Eden. There were personal appearances to Noah, personal appearances to Abraham, to David, to many others. You spoke through the prophets of the Old Testament, and often they heard your voice But, Father, today you speak to us through the word that you have revealed in the past. It is no less real, no less powerful, no less significant, simply because your presence is not physically before us. It is your thinking. As described in the New Testament, it is the thinking of Jesus Christ. And so if we are to know reality and to understand reality, then we have to understand your thinking, how you think and how you have created all things, how you think about all these things which you have created and which you have spoken to in your word. And as we orient our thinking to your thinking, then we are truly oriented to reality. Now, Father, as we resume our study in Revelation chapter 5 today, we pray that you would help us to see the significance of the principles we will learn, that although they refer to future events, and events that are take place in the heavenlies, they have direct personal application to our thinking today. For we live today in light of eternity, and each decision we make today, tonight, tomorrow, and the rest of our lives impacts our future in your presence and in the kingdom and in eternity. We pray that we might be able to concentrate and focus this morning, and you, the Holy Spirit will enable us to put together the things that we study today with that which we have studied in the past. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. We have taken a detour, a doctrinal sidetrack, for about the last six months. We are now in the 137th lesson in our study of the book of Revelation. And somewhere around uh, lesson 104, which would be 33 lessons ago, 33 hours ago, uh, we departed into a study of angels because angels are so significant in the revelation that God gave to the Apostle John with regard to the future period known as the Great Tribulation. That period of time within the book of Revelation actually begins in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. The church, which was the subject of Revelation 2 and 3, is not mentioned or indicated again until we come to Revelation chapter 19 and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth, and we are among those who accompany him to the earth. The church is not present during, on earth during the tribulation period 
because we have been evacuated to heaven, both those who have died in Christ and those who are alive uh, are taken instantly from the earth in an event known as the rapture of the church. At the rapture of the church, in the blinking of an eye, the dead in Christ rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him to be with him forever. Uh, in the clouds, we are then taken to heaven for an event known as the uh, judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. This is described in passages such as 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses uh, uh, 10, 11, 12, and following, as well as in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. There will be a judgment for all church age believers. This is not a judgment to determine uh, where we will spend eternity, but it is a judgment evaluation to determine how we will spend eternity and what our role will be serving in the kingdom of Christ as indicated in Revelation 4 and 5. We will serve as kings and priests to our God in the millennial kingdom and on into the uh, future. That is a motivation for every believer because today we are in training. We're going, our life on earth is three score and ten years or so that God gives us is a time for us to prepare ourselves in terms of our capacity and in terms of our understanding of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, the Holy Spirit, the grace, salvation, the dynamics of the spiritual life. All of these things uh, we come to understand. It builds capacity in our souls to, for future responsibilities. And that has been a major theme in the evaluation, judgment letters, to the seven churches of Revelation covered in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, each one ending with an incentive clause to change. Their challenge to repent, which means to change, followed by an incentive clause to him who overcomes, that is the one who changes, who follows the uh, admonitions in these corrective letters. To him who overcomes, I will grant something. And these things that are promised are various types of rewards and privileges that will be given to believers who are victorious in advancing to spiritual maturity in this church age. And each is followed by an admonition, an exhortation. He who has an ear, that is any believer, if you are positive to the word, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is, these Epistles weren't simply to be addressed to the church at Ephesus and Sardis and Pergamum and, and Smyrna and Thyatira and Laodicea and Philadelphia. These were the messages in these seven were intended for all believers throughout the church age. And then we come to chapter 4, verse 1, before we can conclude chapter 5. We have to go back and have a little summary today to bring everybody back to where we have been in Revelation 4 and 5. It is unfortunate that these chapters were split as chapters, for they describe one integrated scene in heaven before the throne of God. And chapter 4 sets the stage. Chapter 5 describes the action of the scene, but it is one integral scene. You can't really separate them out. They are all describing one event. 
And that event takes place after these things, John says. So the these things are the... Uh, the um, Evaluation of the churches, two and three, which would indicate after the church age, he says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. This is, it's not indicated who the voice is. It's very likely the command from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a picture of the rapture for as he sees the door open in heaven John then goes to heaven. He's taken bodily or spiritually, we don't know which, into heaven. And he is uh, there before the throne of God. And so this is the beginning of this scene. And we are introduced to the first personage that he sees in heaven in verse 2. It is one who is uh, sitting on the throne. And in verse 3 we read, And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So it's a greenish rainbow that surrounds the throne. And often in the Scriptures when we study the appearance of rainbows, it is an indication of the presence of God and the majesty of God. The one who is sitting on the throne is not the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is sitting on the throne is God the Father. As we look at this whole scene, the Lord Jesus Christ is not evident yet, but He is there. He is said in, when we come to chapter 5 to be in the midst of the throne as the Lamb, a second personage. So we have to make sure we keep our uh, distinctions here between, between the Father and the Son. And encircling the throne of God, we have several groups of people. The first group that is mentioned when we come to verse 4 are the 24 elders that are surrounding the throne. And these 24 elders are described in uh, verse 4. Around the throne, 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, we spent a good deal of time studying this issue and who these 24 elders are. Some say they're angels, some say they're men, but the Scripture is very clear through the vocabulary that is used and through the description of them in the next chapter that the 24 elders cannot possibly be angels. The 24 elders must be the uh, resurrected, raptured, rewarded church age believers. And we know this because of several things. First of all, they are wearing robes of white. Where the wearing of white robes and the, this terminology was specifically promised as part of the rewards for overcomers in the seven letters to the seven churches. Secondly, we know from the text of Revelation five nine that it can't possibly refer to uh, angels. So in Revelation 5.9 we read, And they sang a new song. That is, the 24 elders are singing there. It's not clear perhaps in the text when it says, Now they, because it refers to the whole group that is before the throne, you have the 24 elders and the other group I haven't spoken of yet, the four living creatures. 
Chapter 8 talks about the four living beings, the four living creatures, the 24 elders all bow down before the throne, and they sang a new song saying, You are worthy, speaking to the Lamb that has now appeared, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, if you're using a New International Version or a New American Standard Version or a New Century Bible or an English Standard Bible or a New English Version, any of these modern versions that are based on the uh, eclectic textual theory of textual criticism or the Westcott-Hort theory based on what's known as the critical text, then you don't have a wording that looks like that. What you have is wording that says you have redeemed, and then you'll see the word men in italics. And so it looks to you as if this could be angels speaking because it's talking about to God you redeemed men as another party. Now there is a problem with this in the text of the uh, the original text, the original Greek of the book of Revelation. And that is called a textual problem. And we have a variety of these in Scripture, and they don't affect any major doctrines or significant doctrines. And usually with a little study, we can come to a fairly confident conclusion as to what these are. But on occasion, and this is one of those, people come to a conclusion because the framework of doctrine that they have that helps to inform their choices is, is uh, missing a few important ingredients. And one of the important ingredients that many translators miss is an understanding of the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. So when they look at the majority of documents and they read... Uh, that there's no us there, there's just a blank, you have redeemed, they say, well, it has to be men. I mean, it, it has to be men because if, uh, if the ones singing this are redeemed, then they would be men, and we haven't had a resurrection yet. Because you see, for most in Christendom, the rapture or resurrection of believers doesn't occur until after the tribulation. So they can't figure out from their theology why any human beings would be before the throne of God at the beginning stage of the uh, tribulation. So they, their theology causes them to completely dismiss and to make a very poorly informed decision in terms of textual criticism. Now, I realize this, is, uh, this kind of thing gets a little technical for a lot of people, so, but I'm going to try make it very simple for you. This really has nothing to do with the various intricate arguments related to the majority text versus the critical text versus Westcott-Hort and all the various theories of textual criticism that have been uh, set forth over the last 150 years or so. It's very simple. There are 25 excellent ancient manuscripts that contain the most of the book of Revelation. 25. We have numerous 
uh, parts, pieces, references, uh, quotations in church fathers. We have translations made from these that show up in, in Latin versions, in Syriac versions, in Ethiopic and other translations. But when you go through all of that, what it boils down to is there is one. One. I can't say this enough. There is only one ancient document called the Codex Alexandrinus that doesn't have us in the text. Now, some of the others have us, a word over you. The word order is a little different. But of the 25 complete or mostly complete copies of ancient copies of Revelation that we have, 24 include the word us as the object to the verb redeemed. Only one omits it. It doesn't put you in there. It doesn't put men in there. It just drops out the word us. And this is probably why it got copied over into one translation from several centuries later, the Ethiopic version. So when you take all the manuscripts that have the word us versus one that doesn't. Scholars who can't figure out why human beings would be praising God for redemption before the throne say, hmm, 24 to 1. Let's take the one. That's what they've done. And as a result, in your Bibles that follow the uh, eclectic text of, of, uh, of the uh, Nestle Alon text, uh, add men in italics, and so it appears that the 24 elders are, are angels as well as the four living beings. But that just doesn't fit the text very well. In fact, what we see is a tremendous example in heaven. There's another textual problem in 510. I've corrected this in this particular slide. What we actually have is antiphonal singing between two groups of people that are there. The first group are the four living creatures, and the other group are the 24 elders. Now, the reason there are 24 is because we know from the Old Testament that the priests served in, in groups of 24, and they, they had these various cycles as they served in the, in the temple. So the number 24 has a has a significance. Church-age believers, after they're raptured and rewarded, serve as priests and king. And so it follows that same kind of pattern as the Old Testament series that included 24 at the time. So they are representatives, not symbols, but representatives of the mass of believers, and every so often another 24 takes their place. And we cycle through the whole uh, body of believers serving before the throne of God. And there is this antiphonal singing. There are many examples of antiphonal singing throughout Scripture where the first group, the 24 elders, sings, you, referring to the Lamb, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us, the 24 elders, to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This indicates that that by the beginning of the tribulation, because... The tribulation doesn't begin until the Lamb opens the first seal. The church has been raptured, resurrected, 
and rewarded. Some people say, well, it's going to take ages to, uh, re- to go through the judgment seat of Christ. How do you define ages in the timeless environment of heaven? So that what may appear to us in the timeless environment of heaven to be ages in the time-bound environment of creation may just take a few seconds. So that what we see at the beginning of the book of Revelation is a raptured church, a raptured and rewarded church. Great passage to demonstrate the truthfulness of the pre-tribulation rapture. Well, after the 24 elders sing, then they are answered antiphonally by the second group, the living creatures. And they say, and have made them, referring to the 24 elders, you have made them kings and priests to our God, and you shall reign on the earth. Speaking to the Lamb. The, the focal point of the book of Revelation is the preparation of planet earth and humanity by, through judgment and purification for the coming of the Lamb of God as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to take his place as the rightful Davidic ruler over the nation Israel and to establish his kingdom upon the earth. The primary title... And one of my favorite titles, the primary title for the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation is not the lion who comes to conquer. That's how he's introduced initially in chapter 5. But the lion of the first part of chapter 5 becomes the lamb in chapter 5. And 32 times in the book of Revelation, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is referred to as the Lamb, specifically the Lamb who was slain for our sins, a fabulous image that is loaded with uh, all manner of nuance. So it is the Lamb who will reign upon the earth. So let's go back now that we know who these 24 elders are that have appeared in Revelation 4.4. We continue the scene, and we read in verse uh, 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And the term seven spirits of God comes out of imagery in Zechariah, indicating the fullness of of the Spirit's presence. It's not based on the Isaiah 61, as I pointed out many times, which is a common uh, reference. There's only six spirits in Revelation 61. You have to go to Zechariah in order to find this. And one of the things that we'll, we've pointed out in the past as we've gone through uh, the book of uh, Revelation as much as we have is that many of the symbols, most of the symbols that we find in the book of Revelation have their source in Old Testament imagery. So as we go into the tribulation, we're also going to spend a lot of time going back to Zechariah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and especially Daniel in order to understand the symbols and the types 
and the representations that we have in the book of Revelation. You can't come along in the book of Revelation and start assigning new meaning to these symbols and these events that have been already identified in the Old Testament. That's why God in His wisdom did it this way. He introduces these symbols and these events uh, in piecemeal fashion through the Old Testament so that when you get to Revelation, everything then comes together. Everything pulls together. It's not new revelation. It is simply tying together what things that have not yet quite been put together for us in the book of Revelation. So in verse 6, let me back up. Verse 6 says that before the throne there's a sea of glass. Actually, it's a sea-like glass. It's, some translations say a glassy sea. It, it appears to be glass because it is so smooth, but what it does is it separates God from his creatures, reinforcing the creator-creature distinction. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne, circling the throne, we have the four living creatures full of eyes in front and eyes in back. And they're described in verse 7 in terms that remind us of the seraphs, the seraphim, if you will, I am the Hebrew plural, of Isaiah chapter 6. They also remind us of the cherubim that appear to in the vision to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10. They're actually referred to as living beings, but they have a different number of wings and different faces. So they're described in verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. These function as an honor guard of praise to God surrounding his throne, functioning in the same way as the seraphs did in Isaiah 6, singing a very similar song recorded for us in verse 8. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, let me pause a minute to remind you of something in terms of the significance of this. Because sort of the knee-jerk reaction that many of us have is when we read back in chapter 1 this reference to the one on the throne as the one who is to come, there are those who go, oh, the one who's coming is Jesus. That's who's coming in Revelation 19. So maybe the one on the throne is the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm, Wrong. We have to study the usage of these terms that are so precise in the book of Revelation. Lord God Almighty in the book of Revelation is a reference to the Father. Every time it's used, it's in reference to the Father. As we see here, the Lamb appears in verse 5, but is a different personage. Lord God Almighty is a technical term in Revelation for the Father. Every time it's used, it's talking about the one who is where? On the throne. The only one who sits on a throne in the book of Revelation is God the Father. And that fits with what we studied at the end of chapter 3 in the letter to the church at Laodicea. Uh, There is a final statement in verse 21. Jesus says to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Wait a minute, wait a minute, he's on his throne. No, he's not. It is a future statement. I will in the future grant to sit with me on my throne when I have one at the second coming, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. 
See, in the period known as the session, the seating from the Latin word sessionum, the seating of the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, He is not sitting on the Father's throne now. He is not sitting on David's throne now. He is not sitting on His throne of any kind now. He is sitting on the Father's throne at the right hand of the Father, waiting, as is pictured in Daniel chapter 7, for the Ancient of Days to give Him His kingdom. And that occurs through the process of the opening of the seals, this, this judgment on the earth that prepares the earth for His return in Revelation chapter 19. But He does not take His throne until He returns bodily into the earth at the end of Revelation chapter 19. And so we come to this last phrase, the Lord God Almighty, who it was and is and is to come. And I hear somebody saying, see, what are you going to do about that? Jesus is the one who is to come. Ah, you're right. Jesus is the one who is to come. But He's not the only one who is coming. In fact, if we look at Revelation chapter uh, 21, verse 3, we read, And I heard a loud voice from heaven. This is in the new heavens and the new earth. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, that is the dwelling of God, is with men. And God is a term in Revelation for the Father. The tabernacle of God is with men, and He, not the Lamb, but the Father, He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and will and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And it is only later in this chapter that the Son is introduced. So, the Father is coming. The one who is and who was and is to come is a title for the Father. He is coming. He, in fact, all three members of the Trinity will have their physical dwelling. They will tabernacle among men. And Revelation 21 says that there will be no need to have a temple on the earth. In fact, there will be no need for a sun or a moon during the time of the new heavens and new earth because the universe and the earth will be illuminated by the glory of their presence. So Revelation chapter 4 tells us that the throne is surrounded by the 24 representatives of the uh, church, the rewarded, raptured, resurrected church, and the four living beings. Now this isn't the last that we see of them. They don't sit there simply to praise God, for they will play a vital role as witnesses and uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ when the first four seal judgments are opened. Verse 9 we read, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before their throne, saying... So we see a clear indication of worship, worship depicted and described in Revelation so that we're not left to our own subjective feelings as to what worship is. Now that is a challenge to our modern evangelical church today in America because of the influence of postmodernism 
98% of Christians think worship has to do with your attitude when you come to church as opposed to external guidelines, external objective guidelines that are given in Scripture. In other words, worship is not what you do in submission to God. Worship is how you feel about God. And that is nothing more than mysticism and paganism. And it is this belief that entered into modern Christianity in America through the charismatic Pentecostal movement and changed the way church was done in a revolutionary manner. And we've gone over this before. Starting in the 1970s, it changed the way music was done in church and music began to be called worship. And the study of God's Word was no longer called worship. The pastor is no longer the worship leader. It is the song leader that has become the worship leader and it is a devastating, devastating and heretical shift that has taken place. And you can go to 99% of the churches in this city, and they've all made that shift. And what it does is it changes the center, the focal point of worship from the throne of God to the enthroned self who seeks to worship his own emotional idol that he has constructed in his soul and labeled as Jesus. And so the music is designed to produce a certain emotion that is then called worshipful. And it is only if that emotion, that mindset, or even a physical posture, it is only as that is generated that there is real worship. And I've heard this for years. People have come to me, oh, I really felt like I worship today. Or, and then somebody else, same service. I didn't feel like I worship today. There's just too much teaching. Many of you have not heard that before, and you're fortunate, but that is standard operating procedure today. And we must always come back to the Bible to define worship. And so these passages are integral to understanding what worship is. And in fact, our own English word worship is built on an English word that is used in here in Revelation 4.11 and again in chapter 5, and that is the word worthy, oxios in the Greek, means that which is worthy of worship, that which has met a standard and is valued. The old English word was worthship, worthship, to ascribe value, honor to someone or to Something. So that is where our English word derives. The Greek word for worship, the Greek word proskuneo, has to do with kneeling or being in obedience to someone's authority and recognizing that authority in the, in the life. And the Old Testament words have the same concept. It is to recognize the authority of God and God's word in your life and to submit and to subordinate every area of life, business, money, family, leisure, what you read, your entertainment, to submit everything in life to the authority of God and His Word because of two things. And that's what we see in Revelation 4 and 5. The first has to do with the fact that He is the Creator of all things. This creation 
evolution conflict that has plagued Western civilization for the last 150 years, it is at its very core an assault on the core doctrine of worship in Scripture. For we worship God first and foremost as the elders and the living beings say here in Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And this is attributed to the Father, because we're talking about the one who is on the throne. The Lamb doesn't come in. He's still sitting, obscured in John's vision at this point. He hasn't appeared yet. So this is an ascription to the Father. You are worthy, because by your will... You created all things. The first and foremost reason we worship God is because He is the one who created all things and He is the one who created us. Now, there may be some saying, well, wait a minute. I've read other passages in scriptures that seem to indicate that it was the Lord Jesus Christ who did the creating. And yes, there are passages which indicate His role as the instrument of creation, but the ultimate creator is the Father. Let's look at one passage. Make sure we get this right. Colossians 1.16 begins, For by Him all things were created. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ in context. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Now those terms all indicate the various ranks of the angelic hierarchy. All things were created through Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for Him. And He is before all things, that is, in priority and in time, and in, and I put in brackets, by, because it's an instrumental usage there in the Greek, by Him all things consist. A couple of important observations here. First of all, the key thing to understanding any passage of Greek in the Bible is to identify your main verb. The main verb is katizo, translated created, and it is an aorist passive verb. Now, passive is what we need to focus on. Passive verb means that the, uh, the one who performs the action is indicated not as the subject of the verb, but usually by a phrase by. For example, if I say John hit the ball, John is the subject of the verb, Hit is the verb. Ball receives the action of the verb. I say John hit the ball with the bat. With the bat is the instrument. Now in English, I could also say John hit the ball by means of the bat or by the bat. I'm going to use that. It's a little awkward, but it still communicates. If I change that from an active voice verb, John hit the ball, to a passive voice, the ball was hit by John by the bat. See, in English, we indicate the agent of the action, the one who performs the action in a passive verb construction with that preposition by. And that's how we know. We look at that sentence, we say by such and so. The ball was hit by John. Oh, John is the agent of action. We know that because of the preposition by. So we look at a verse like this in the Greek. We look at the English, say, for by him all things were created. Oh, In English, the him would then be the one who performed the action. 
But that's not what the Greek does. Not at all. You see, what we have here in the Greek is the preposition in plus a dative. In, E-N, indicates the instrument used by the one who performs the action. In Greek, just like English has a preposition by that indicates the agent of the action, Greek has a preposition that indicates the agent of the action, the one who performs the action. So that in an active voice verb, that would be indicated by uh, the subject. When it's changed to a passive voice, you indicate the agent of the action with the preposition hoopa. You don't have hoopa here. See, if you had a hoopa clause here, it would be hoopa theos, by God. All things were created through Jesus Christ. See, the performer, the true subject agent of the, of the verb is not mentioned in the passage. Only the instrument that the Father used, the one who carried out the action, so that the one who is the Creator is the Father. But because Jesus Christ carries it out the action as the instrument of God, He's also fully involved he can also be called the Creator. But what we see in Revelation 4, we see indicated by the Greek of Colossians 1, 16 and 17, it is, it is the one who is sitting on the throne. It, as Revelation 3, 21 indicates, the Father on the throne who is the ultimate Creator of all things. Now we get into Revelation 5. Revelation 5 gives us the action. And I saw, John says, in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll. It's laying on his hand. It's not gripped in his hand. It's laying on his hand. It is a a scroll that is written inside and on the back. He can't read the writing, but he sees that it it is written. There's writing inside and also on the back so that it's when it's rolled up, he can see some of the writing on the back. And it is sealed with seven seals. You have to break each of the seals before you can eventually open the document. This is typical of many legal documents in the ancient world. And so the indication here is this is a covenant, a contract. And it is that which gives the Lord Jesus Christ as the God-man the ruling rights to the earth. The original Adam was created as God's image to reign over the earth, but he failed. And now the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, is going to, because he has passed the test, the first Adam failed, he is going to take the position as the son of David, the son of man, to rule in his kingdom over the earth. And this scroll then functions like a title deed or contract for the earth. And at this time there is a dramatic scene that breaks out in heaven and there is this mighty angel. There are three strong or mighty angels that appear in the course of the book of Revelation and he proclaims Caruso. This is a term often indicated of officials in a courtroom. We would say this is the function of the um, this is the function of the sergeant at arms. And he makes an announcement. He is looking for someone who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And no one, no one 
anywhere. That's why it says in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth. This is a merism in Hebrew. It is talking about that no matter where you can think of, anywhere in creation, in, on, or under, uh, anywhere, there's no one, no creature can be found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. And this produces a strong reaction in the Apostle John. He breaks out weeping loudly. The Greek indicates he's wailing. He is so emotionally straught that no one can execute this document. Why is he weeping? Because without the execution of this document, sin and suffering, death and destruction will continue in history. And he weeps because no one is found worthy to open the scroll, to read it, or to look at it. But one of the elders comes says to him, Do not weep. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. This is when we first see the Lord Jesus Christ enter into the presence of the throne room. And John says, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, omnipotence, and seven eyes, omniscience, which are the seven spirits of God, the fullness of the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, sent out into all the earth. Then he came, the Lamb comes forward, takes the scroll from the right hand of the Father, who sat up, take from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders, the resurrected, raptured, rewarded, church-age believers, fall down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The presence of these musical instruments indicates that even though the text in chapter 4 and chapter 5 uses the word saying, that word lego can also indicate singing. That's what this is. There is singing in heaven. Singing is very much a part of worship, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks. And they are going to sing another praise. The first praise had to do with praising God because He is the Creator of all things. And now he they are praised because of redemption. And we've looked at this verse already. You're worthy to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It is praise for the Lamb for what He has done and for what He will do. You have made us kings and priests to our God and you shall, future tense, reign on the earth, not present tense. Jesus Christ is not reigning on the earth today. There is not an absentee spiritual kingdom on the earth today as the amillennialists and uh, postmillennialists would have it. He, it. he will reign future tense only when He returns at the second coming. Then in 5.11, John looks, and I heard the voice of many angels. This is where we stop to focus on the angelic conflict. I heard the voice of many angels the first time we realized that surrounding the four living beings, surrounding the 24 elders are myriads upon myriads of angels. 
And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands upon ten thousands, an innumerable host of angels, finite but innumerable. And they sing around the throne. They're singing with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory. The reference to the myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands of angels is an allusion to the throne room scene in Daniel chapter 7 verse 10 where you have a similar uh, counting of the number of angels. And now what we see is a statement regarding the worthiness of the Lamb. And it could be uh, restated like this. Worthy is the Lamb who was killed. We should praise Him because of His power, His wealth, His strength, His wisdom, His honor, His glory, and His blessing. So we will come back next time. We're caught up again. We'll come back next time to focus on these attributes of God as the base of Christ as the basis for praise and worship. And then as we get into verse uh, 13, we will come back to the doctrine of worship. Early this year, we studied worship and music. And we're going to come back and I will uh, hit those again, add some things I did not teach the last time. Yes, indeed, we'll have more show and tell, sound, audio, and visual, uh, especially when we talk about the music aspect. But it's important to understand worship because so often we restrict our concept of worship to simply the study of God's Word, and yet we have different kinds of worship mentioned in Scripture, all of which are important, even though that which informs everything else comes through the study and teaching and application of God's Word that leads to the other areas of worship, worship of singing and praise and thanksgiving, worship of giving, worship of communion, and above all, the importance of just studying the Word. So we'll begin on the doctrine of worship next time and conclude with music when I return from Kiev with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be refreshed and encouraged by your word, to be reminded that there is a plan, that that which has occurred in the past sets the stage for that which will occur in the future. And we praise you for the fact that you have created all things, you have created us, and even though you created us with free will and we failed, you have also redeemed us. And it is through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that we have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are not our own, but we are yours. We are bond slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. He owns us, and we are to serve him with our lives as part of our worship. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, they are in a life that is without purpose, without meaning, without hope, that they will take this opportunity to recognize that as a creature of yours, there is meaning and hope, and that comes only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of your sins. They've been paid for. The issue now 
is whether or not you will accept that free gift, that free gift of his sacrifice on the cross. And you do that by trusting in him, by believing that he died on the cross for you. And as you trust in him and him alone, at that instant when God the Father in his omniscience knows that you have trusted in Christ alone, at that instant you are given the righteousness of Christ, you are declared to be just, you are given a new life in him that can never be taken from you, and you become a new creature in Christ, and you are born again. You have eternal life, and that can never be lost. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we have studied today, that we might be reminded that we are living each day today in light of eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.